Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. Sweet topic to talk about today, and uh, we're in an interesting, awesome environment actually right now. We are in a basement that has a lot of history, a lot of deer, uh, bear uh, we got a cat in here. What do we got? What else we got going on? This is this is pretty incredible. We also have the Brewers playing right next to us, the Cardinals. Eric's got his pupils dilated. Yep. And we're all sitting around the bar. And we are going to talk to Kevin about elk in Wisconsin. So yes. uh, we've got Eric, Mark, and Kevin here. Kevin, can you introduce yourself briefly real quick to let the listeners know who you are? Sure, why not? Um, welcome to my uh, my abode my man land. My name is Kevin Wallenfang. I am the big game ecologist for the state of Wisconsin. And uh, the boys here wanted to talk about elk reintroduction and elk hunt. And so that's a big part of my job is uh, elk management is something that falls under my responsibilities at the DNR along with deer. Right. And the big reason we're talking about this, I think, is is obviously that when people think Wisconsin and hunting, Elk is not probably at the top of their minds. Usually it's whitetail and uh for good and reason. then whitetail. And then <laughs> probably third Big would be bears. whitetail. Yeah. <laughs> if you're gonna yeah, pick a third, it'd probably be whitetail. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and, but this year, and Kevin, it, correct me if I'm mistaken at all, this year is the first year in a long time. I don't know exactly how long, I can't remember, but that elk will be on the menu, so to speak. Well, for... this is, yeah, this is actually the first managed hunt in history. In so, history, okay. Yeah, so elk have been shot in Wisconsin, of course, in the past, but they were unregulated. So like so many critters in the United States, elk pretty much disappeared from Wisconsin because they were unregulated hunting. I always hate it when somebody says overhunted because they weren't regulated. So it was the same thing as everything else that's disappeared in this country. Turkeys, you know, white-tailed deer were almost gone from the country. Same story with elk by the late 1800s, that European, if you want to call it that, uh, expansion across the country, wiped out the habitat and uh, pretty much ate every elk on the landscape. So this is the very first regulated hunt in history in our state. Now, to have a hunt like this... That's not just kind of something where folks at the DNR and, you know, all those related entities just decide, hey, we're going to hunt elk this year. I mean, this has been a long time in the making, it if has. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Goes back a long way. It actually goes back into the 1980s. Were any of you guys born in the 1980s? Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. So we started with a, we didn't even have a reintroduction of elk in Wisconsin, really, in 1995. It was basically a science experiment. From uh, It was headed by the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point, and they wanted to put some elk out on the landscape basically as an experiment just to see if they could survive. So in 1995, 25 elk from the state of Michigan were gifted to the state of Wisconsin, and they were put out on the landscape in the Clam Lake area. The project was headed by Dr. Ray Anderson out of the UW-Stevens Point. And they put some graduate students on it, and they went to work and studied everything they could find out about elk habitat use and reproduction and everything else. And uh, by the year 2000, uh, that population had grown to, I want to say, about 60 animals. And by that time, you know, people liked having them out there. The Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and other conservation organizations were fully behind it, pumping a lot of money into it, and there was no way those animals were going to disappear at that point. So in the year 2000, the Natural Resources Board and the Department of Natural Resources took over management responsibilities of that population, and you know it's been going up ever since, and we finally find ourselves to the point where we can have a managed hunt. So it's been 23 years in the making, and that's, that's part of the communications that we've been doing on it, is people go, oh boy, that was, that was quick. It doesn't <laughs> feel quick. Right. Um, you know, we actually thought, by about 2012 or 2013 that we were going to have a hunt. And then you'll recall in 2013, we got socked with the worst winter conditions that we've ever had in the state of Wisconsin. Very deep snows. We pretty much had winter from October to June. And uh, we lost a big chunk of our elk during that period. So, the you know, took a few years, but the population rebounded. And um, here we are. 
So, Do you know what the historic range of the elk looked like in Wisconsin? We have historic records, either written records or bone fragment, antler fragment, whatever it might be, uh, of elk in at least 50 of Wisconsin, 72 counties. So they were pretty wow. widespread. Wow. As you guys uh, well know, the ecology of elk, elk are really a plains animal. They're not a, necessarily a mountain animal. Not that they may not have been found there historically, but for the most part, you would find elk right out with the buffalo and the antelope and everything else in Wisconsin was the same. Uh, down here in the southern part of the state where we are right now, lots of records of, of uh, you know, historic records. And, I mean, it wasn't all that long ago somebody swimming in Lake Mendota or Monona, I think, pulled up a great big elk rack. So You're they were me. here. Yeah, they were here. Man. There's two things I can't believe there. One is that they pulled that out of one of those lakes. A two kid is stubbed his toe on it. Two is that wow. somebody was actually in one of those lakes. Yeah. <laughs> those lakes are disgusting. Yeah. Not me, bro. <laughs> yeah, the E. coli thing was low that day, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> good, good. So, you know, I mean, like you said, this has been a long time in the making. How long have you personally been working on or with the elk program? I have been involved in the elk program actually since day one. Wow. In the 1990s, I was a limited term employee for the DNR. I was actually the assistant big game ecologist at that time. So I was uh, here from the very start. From the DNR, I went and I actually worked for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation for seven years. So I spent those years uh, fundraising for elk and you know working with volunteers and doing land acquisition and all kinds of stuff. In the interim, when I wasn't here, I was volunteering, helping out with chapters and things like that. And then in 2011, I came back as the, the head of the program. And to be perfectly honest with you, I mean, I love the deer hunting. You guys, I think you can look around and know I'm a pretty passionate deer hunter. <laughs> but elk is what really brought me back and wanting to do that job because there was opportunity there. And, you know, elk has always been near and dear to my heart. And I wanted to see this thing through to the end. And there was an opportunity to bring more animals in and really help this population flourish the way we had always hoped. An opportunity to start a second herd in the state, and you know, it's all coming together. I guess things happen for a reason. I worked for the Elk Foundation for those seven years, and to be perfectly honest with you, I lost my job there because they eliminated my position. That happened to a lot of groups at that time. Funding mm -hmm. and all those kind of things were were short, and I lost my position. I had to go look for something else to do. I guess everything happens for a reason, because if that would have happened, I probably never would have left the Elk Foundation. I'd still be working there, and I wouldn't have had this opportunity. So everything happens for a reason, and I'm at this point, I'm glad it did, because I am where I am, and, and things are moving along well. So That's so cool. Now, so one aspect that we mentioned, actually, you said this right away, that this is the first historical managed hunt. So there's that aspect of hunting that hunters themselves really know is there's this management aspect of it. You know, some people aren't exactly aware of that as much. And so the reason these elk, there, there's a hunt for, for these elk is to help manage the population. How do you guys decide, what's the criteria that goes into, obviously, because you said it's been a long time in the making, what's the criteria that made you guys say like, yep, this year, it's good to go? Well, it was actually a rule. Um, oh, okay. several years ago when some of the rules to establish an elk hunt and things like that were put into play, there was actually a rule that went through the state legislature. It's a statutory rule that required that there be at least 200 elk in the Clam Lake population before we could have a hunt. Ironically, we're sitting here talking about this. That rule got lifted today. We had put a rule proposal together actually a few years ago, and it finally got approved this very day by the State Natural Resources Board. So we had that same rule in effect in the Black River herd that there has to be 150 elk down in that herd, but that got lifted today. So some people are going to look at that and say, well, you know, you guys just want to hunt them faster. You know, that's not why we did that. We did it because what we want to be able to do is manage the population based on what the population is telling us, based on the dynamics of the population, the, all the biology that goes into yep. it, Right. So we sat and we waited and waited and waited until we had 200 elk in the population. In truth, we could have been hunting this population for a few years already. Right. We have a very high number of bulls in the population. We estimate of that, we estimate right now that there's about uh, 215 to 220 elk in the Clam Lake herd. At least 70 of those are bulls. So we could have wow. been hunting these animals for.
for a few years yep. now without any danger of, of doing damage to the population. Minnesota's had a population of 100 up in that far northwest part of the state. They've had a population of about 100 elk for years, and they've had a season for years and years. But it's like huh. four, five, six tags. It's real small. Mm-hmm. But it's providing recreation, and it's providing funding to the program. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's an important part of this. And, you know, I work for the DNR. I hear this kind of stuff all the time. They think that we're motivated by money, which we're not. The last thing, I don't ever think about, geez, how many permits should we issue this year? How much mm-hmm. money is that going to make for the department? Mm-hmm. None of us think like that. Yeah. We're thinking first and foremost, we got into this stuff because we're all deer hunters and we love it. You, you don't go into this kind of thing, you know, just, oh, what should I do today? Hmm, maybe I'll go be a deer biologist. Yeah. No, <laughs> you do it because you're passionate about it. So that's the same thing for us. I'm getting way off track here, I think, Kanye. I'm sorry no, about that. No, it's good. But um, so anyway... Backing up to your original question here a little bit, we're looking, we got that rule change, and we're looking at all of the factors that influence that population. So we've got years and years of data, you know, 23 years of uh, fawn, or I should say calf. I talked about deer too much. About calf survival, about reproductive rates and recruitment to the population, about predation impacts, uh, you know, bull to cow ratios, all that kind of stuff is all poured into this, and we come up with an annual population estimate. Actually, we're using trail cameras uh, as part of this whole thing now, too. Mm. We use the uh, the radio collars that are on quite a few of the elk, and we use them in conjunction with trail cameras because what we're trying to do right now is figure out a new way that we can estimate the population when we don't have a ton of radio collars out there. As yeah. that population grows, we're yeah. not going to be able to continue to put so many collars on the animals. Because does the radio collar process happen like we did when we did the fawn searching? Are you hand-catching the calves? Well, not like that. Okay. No, well, the ca- the calves, yes. Okay. But we also winter trap. Okay. Um, so right. we've got big traps we set up and we bait the animals in, and then you know it's like sitting in your living room when you were a kid with your pet rabbit in a box and a stick. It's almost like that. It's that simple in some ways. But anyways, yes, uh, we've got radio collars on a lot of those animals, but we're looking for new ways to, to come up with population estimates, and we're using a trail camera grid to do that now. But, you know, we pour all that information in there. We look at winter severity and all that kind of stuff, and we come up with a population projection. So when we're making our population estimate, we're doing that in March. We don't know how many calves were born out there yet at that point, but we don't for deer either, you know? Right. So we're making a projection of what we think the population is going to be based on knowing how many breeding age cows we have out there, how many of those on average are going to drop a calf, what their survival is going to be. We look at spring green up and how that affects bears. So we know that when bears have their spring green up happen at a certain time, and the bear rut, okay, for lack of a better word, is going on in the springtime. Depending on when those things happen also influences how many calves get killed by bears in the springtime. Mm-hmm. If we oh, get yeah. a good early spring green up, the bears have other food to focus on. If we get a late spring green up, they're focusing on looking for something else to eat. And a lot of times that's calves or fawns or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Boy, I'm really getting off topic. Oh, this no, is no, like, I'm fascinated. <laughs> yeah, keep, keep going, yeah. Um, and uh, I, could go, I could talk about that all day long. I mean, those when you've got a sow that uh, knows how to catch a calf, she's good at it. I mean, we had one year that we had six calves that we knew of that got killed by bears, and we think that five of them were killed by the same sow because she knew what she was doing. And then you tend to see that generationally. So if she knows how to do it, her cubs are going to know how to do it. It's a taught, it seems to be a taught thing. So anyway, we pile all that stuff into these population estimates and going way back into your question, we had 5%. The tag level this year was based on harvesting 5%. That's what the rule said. Going into the future, we're going to be able to look at that total population determine we're probably going to be splitting uh, our elk management zone into a few different zones so that Hmm. we can target higher and lower permit levels, just like we do with deer right now, but on a much bigger scale. And we'll be able to look at that overall population. And in a situation like we have right now, we have a lot of bulls out there. I mean, our our bull-to-cow ratio is probably about one-to-one. Right, it's about one to one right now. Yeah, yeah. And so we've got excess bulls. We could have been, like I said, we could have been harvesting some bulls for years, but we had to wait till we got to two hundred. But going forward, we're going to be able to set permit levels based on 
all those dynamics of the population. So how many, again, I, I forget because we've been talking about this for a while, but how many tags are there this year then for the... Well, we said it, you got to kind of qualify as to who we're talking about. There's a total quota mm-hmm. of 10 bulls. And here in Wisconsin, or at least in the northern part of the state where our Clam Lake Elk Range is, it falls within the ceded territories. And the Chippewa tribes in Wisconsin have treaty rights that they've had, you know, since the 1800s. And those were all, they all went to federal court in the 1980s. And it was determined that the tribes retain all of their uh, hunting and gathering and fishing rights off-reservation rights in that northern part of Wisconsin. So our Clam Lake Elk Range falls within that area which entitles the tribe to up to half of the total quota. So there's a grand total of uh, a quota of 10. Five of those go to the state hunters, and we issued those uh, permits, and every one of them was bouncing off the walls when I called them to tell them they want a tag. (laughs) And you personally called them. I did. And then the other five go to the Chippewa tribes, and they don't necessarily go to an individual hunter. They do things dramatically different than what you and I would do. They are going out. Actually, uh, over this weekend, they actually shot two bulls already. Hmm. They could have started hunting the day after Labor Day, but they waited for some cooler weather and that kind of thing. They went out and they did get two elk, but they went in small hunting parties. And they were, you know, they were very conscientious that this is, we, we get five. We don't want to mess this up. We don't want to overshoot. Uh, they went out in very small groups, as I understand it, uh, with a designated shooter. And uh, so they have three to go, and and uh, that's that's just part of the game, wow. you know. That that kind of thing upsets some people, but you know, uh, here in Wisconsin, we've been working with that for a long, long time. Oh yeah, bears, you know, anything that we set a quota on in the in the ceded territories, the tribes have that uh, that right to do. So yeah, elk are no different. And like us, I mean, they've been sitting on the edge of their seat for 23 years waiting for this opportunity to finally come. And they're, they're taking great responsibility with it, as I can see it. They're very conscientious of not wanting to overharvest, not wanting to shoot something that they're not able to shoot. So I'm glad to see that. They're using it as a, as a cultural event. They had a camp set up this weekend. They had a lot of their youth out there to participate in it. They're trying to, you know, pass on their... Their ceremonial kind of stuff, you know, they they do all the tobacco and, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. It's kind of neat to participate in. So that's that's part of what we're working with here. And yeah. and wow, they've they've incredible. helped us with the elk project in the past mm-hmm. cool. and, and currently. I was going to ask, yeah, how, how tightly do you guys work with the tribes then? Like, Well, the tribes, uh, the, the Chippewa tribes sit on most of the committees within the department. Anything that we're setting a quota... Okay. So Fisher, Bobcat, Bears, Turkeys, you name it. And then I couldn't even tell you what they all are in fisheries. But they sit on, on committees with us. Uh, we regularly, we have a tribal liaison within the department. We have multiple people that talk to the tribes on a regular basis, our administration on a regular basis. They, the tribes do provide money to wildlife management in Wisconsin through, I believe it's through gaming. Okay. Uh, but they do provide funding to the department uh, or to the state of Wisconsin, and then that gets divvied out in various ways. So, okay. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You said that, is it just the tribes that were able to start hunting the day after Labor Day, or is that, when does the the other five, so to speak? So the five, we refer to them as state hunters. Okay. Um, okay. So the five state hunters, uh, they will begin hunting October 13th. Okay, gotcha. Um, and then they go through the middle of November, things shut down for the gun deer season, and then it opens back up for them in December. So they have another 10 days or so. So so those bulls are going to have a chance to breed right now. So yeah. they'll be able to pass on their genetics throughout right. the breeding season. And then those 10, well, remaining five bulls, those will be hunted outside of your traditional elk breeding season. Right. For the most part, most of the breeding is going to be done well before the state hunters get to go. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be interesting for us to see how this plays out. And actually, there was conversation about this at the Natural Resources Board meeting today. There aren't very many states that allow firearm hunting during the breeding period mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it does disrupt the rut. And yes, the tribes are out there doing it right now. And they it sounds like they're going to probably wait a while before they finish, you know, harvest the rest of their tags. But even right now, a lot of those cows have already been bred. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of states will have an archery season or a muzzleloader season, but they're lower impact. 
So the success rates are lower. The likelihood that somebody's going to, you know, kill a big herd bull and it's going to somehow follow up the whole breeding process for a handful of elk there. During the bow season, that's a little bit minimal. If you did it, if you had a rifle season, the likelihood of something like that is is higher. Mm -hmm. So we just try, that's why our rules are set the way they are. We're trying to avoid having that gun season uh, more of a disruption out there during the breeding season. Mm -hmm. So like I said, by the time the state hunters go, the vast majority of the breeding is going to be done. So we're not really concerned about it. Mm -hmm. Would that be something that you would see on the horizon down the road, maybe having a, an archery season during the rut, or is it just too soon to tell? I think you were watching the board meeting today, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that question has come up, and it's something that we will consider as we, uh, we're we actually on the brink of writing a new elk management plan. So season structure is one of the topics that we're going to take up. You know, there's kind of some torn, mixed feelings about it. You know, Michigan has their uh, bow hunters hunting at the same time as their gun hunters in December, and they're still having extremely high success rates. So, yeah. you know, is it necessary? I don't know. Would it be fun to be out there during the peak of the rut and calling in a running bull? Heck yeah. Right. It'd oh, be yeah. really fun. Yeah. But that's something that, like I said, we're going to consider it. Uh, it's going to be talked about, but it would also be the kind of thing that I would hope that we could kind of ease our way into, mm -hmm. you know, not get too carried away with it. Because like I said, you know, if they're seeing 100% success over there, what's that going to do to us? Mm -hmm. It's something that I would like to be able to ease into and be able to measure it. And especially, you know, now with crossbows out on the landscape, that changes things a little bit yep. differently. Crossbow sure. hunters have been shown in Wisconsin that they are having a little bit of a higher success rate. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. We'll see how it all pans out. Mm -hmm. It seems like, to, and I'm not a biologist by any stretch of the imagination, right? But also, like, it's so tightly managed. I mean, we're talking a total of, you know, I guess for, for you know, the Wisconsin state residents, a total of, you know, five tags that it seems like you probably could do that, you know, without having a crazy impact on the herd dynamics. Yes. You know, particularly with that bull-to-cow ratio. That's, that's the one thing I was going to ask. Two things about that bull-to-cow ratio. One, it seems crazy strong, which is. is which is awesome. It definitely is. <laughs> um, so, at least to me on the surface, it seems like, oh, you pull five bulls out, like, those cows are going to get bred. And then along with that, I wanted to circle maybe a little too far back, but you're talking about, yeah, we probably could have been hunting this herd a little bit earlier, but, you, you know, the bar had been set, and we I definitely restricted. see, you yep. know, see that follow-through. Is there any speculation, though, that the herd could have been stronger with earlier management through hunting, or is that a, like a moot point? No, that is that would it probably wouldn't have hurt anything. Yeah, but it certainly would not have been stronger. Okay, so yeah. uh, you know, removing some animals, uh, you know, we don't have anything remotely close to say too many animals on the landscape where having too many elk out there are taking food away from another mm -hmm. elk. I mean, right. we're, we're looking at, you know, one or two elk per square mile on, on average. Actually, it's way less than that. Our Clam Lake elk range is, uh, is 1,600 square miles, and, you know, we've got 200-some animals yeah. on the landscape. So, you know, you're looking at one animal for every few miles right. kind of a thing. Yeah. So, so. so what are the department's goals long-term? What would they like to see the elk herd get to? Like that sustainable, you know. Yep. Well, it's already sustainable. So got to kind of be careful how mm -hmm. you use that word. But our long-term goal is is 1,400 animals mm -hmm. in the Clam Lake herd and about 400 in the Jackson County herd. Okay. So we've got that second herd down there that we reintroduced a few years ago. But as part of this, I mentioned that we're going to rewrite our elk management plan. Part of what we want to do, and we are in the process of a public survey right now, is ask people how many elk do you think should be out there? Mm -hmm. Is that too many? Is that too few? Are there other counties adjoining the current elk range that would like to have elk in their county? And we've already heard from some that said, how do we get elk in our county? Mm -hmm. We've heard from, you know, one of the original areas that was considered for elk was Bayfield County, and they said, we don't want them. They had a oh. big, their big apple industry and all that kind of stuff okay. up there. They're more agriculture. They're one of the more agricultural, you know, focused counties in the northern part of the state. They were looking at it as a problem, and they didn't want them. And we've heard, you know, maybe some of that kind of sentiment is turning around too. But mm. we've heard from a number of counties that would like to have them, and there's a lot of country up there that could support elk. So we'll see how that pans yeah. out too. There. But cool. I would love to see 
a much bigger population across the northern part of the state. It could handle it. Mm-hmm. The question at some point gets to be not from a biological, you know, carrying capacity standpoint, but how many elk are the public willing to tolerate? Mm-hmm. That number in Clam Lake area, northern Wisconsin, is going to be a lot higher than Jackson County because of the cranberry industry, the, you know, a lot more agriculture yep. down there. There's a lot mm-hmm. more things for them to get into trouble with. Right, right. Yep. You know. You touched on one thing there that I think might be worth kind of taking a step back and just describing. Um, you talked about the landscape in northern Wisconsin versus southern Wisconsin. And could you just describe like the northern part? Because if you look at Wisconsin, it's an extremely diverse state. Yeah. So could you just describe that for people who maybe haven't, you know, aren't familiar with the state or? Yeah, the Clam Lake Elk Range, for the most part, is a flat jungle. So, I mean, one of the things that we tend to spend a lot of money on from the Elk Foundation standpoint, other partner standpoint, U.S. Forest Service, is creating openings. So there's a lot of extremely dense cover up there. A lot of it is fairly aged forest, so it's not as good an elk habitat Mm -hmm. as it used to be, which actually has caused us some problems. Mm. The early years of having elk out on the landscape, we saw a population growth of about 22% a year, and that dropped quite significantly down to about 5 to 7%. Mm. And it's because that habitat was aging, Mm -hmm. wasn't providing great habitat anymore. So one of the habitat types that we focus most heavily on in northern Wisconsin is this young forest, this whole idea of young forest. And it's what's good for deer, it's what's good for grouse, it's what's good for so many things. Mm -hmm. Elk uh, show a real preference from a food standpoint and a a bedding standpoint, a uh, escape cover standpoint of this young aspen and clear cuts. Mm -hmm. So like I said, for deer, for grouse, whatever it might be, they really hone in on that kind of stuff. And one of the problems that we've had in the Clam Lake area is that the best habitat has for the last several years been on small pieces of private property that are enrolled in the managed forest program. So they're cutting their properties, they're uh, harvesting the timber off of it, Mm -hmm. and they've got great young forest on it. And that's where the elk go. But when they're 40 acres and 80 acres and pretty small in size, all the elk congregate there and so do the predators. So they know where to find them. So Uh one of our goals in this whole thing is we're not looking at predator management from the standpoint of remove predators. Mm-hmm. You're never going to, that's tough to do. Yep. Our predator management strategy is to put bigger, more broad, and scattered good habitat out there mm-hmm. so that the elk spread you out spread more. The elk, the elk mm-hmm. spread out, and there's one thing that we know for absolutely sure is that elk can outrun any predator across a clear cut. Wolf can't run through a clear cut, not very well elk can run and jump and, you know, whatever Mm. over all the slash. But, you know, the opposite of that is get those animals in a habitat that's primarily dominated by old forest, old growth. It looks like a park underneath it. Mm -hmm. Now you have a problem. Yeah. You know, so we're focusing on that. It's like I said, it's a lot of jungle. One of the primary components of the Clam Lake area that uh, it was a primary feature of that area, why it was selected for elk reintroduction is what's called the ELF line. And the ELF line stands for extremely low frequency. And there's actually an area just outside of Clam Lake that has a, it used to be an antenna. It was for submarine, believe it or not, it was for submarine communication all over the world during the Cold War. And it's a X basically of about 13 by 13 miles. <laughs> and we continue to maintain that as a wildlife opening. So through the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and the work of the U.S. Forest Service. The Forest Service owns it, and uh, they continue to maintain that as a forest opening because there's not a lot of opening up there. So it's a key component for elk. They hone in on those openings. You know, there's grasses there and that kind of thing, especially uh, in the springtime when they're coming out of winter and they're also lactating and trying to feed a calf. They will hone in on those areas and spend a lot of time there. So again, that's a key component that we have built lots and lots of wildlife openings on the landscape to try to spread elk out over a bigger area so that they're tougher for the predators to find and that kind yeah. of thing. Well, it's, and it's, it's a known fact that submarines play a big role in I'm most, totally er, most uh, elk management <laughs> I bet plans. you'll not find another, uh, <laughs> another state that can say that. So. Totally distracted now because I just realized I need to learn a lot more about my state. Is it, It's just like a big antenna? It was a it was an antenna. All the wires and all the poles and everything are gone, but oh. a key component to it 
is that that area of the state, actually that area of the world, has a very specific kind of granite, a rock base. As I understand it, it was an important component as to how that whole system worked. Wow. Fascinating. That yeah. is fascinating. They Absolutely. were I mean they would commu- they would use that line to communicate with submarines out in the middle of the Pacific. Oh, so. Incredible. Yeah. Wow. Talking about this landscape kind of brings me to questions that I was gonna ask also like about this hunt. And obviously I know that folks like yourself at the DNR, you guys have been familiarizing yourself with their habitat. Obviously that that probably goes without saying, you know, and studying these elk. Now looking at it from the hunter's perspective, the first thing I was going to ask was, is I imagine there's quite a bit of public up there. That, that's Most probably where of they're the going to be. Most yeah, of the area, that, so that's where they're going to the be The Clam Lake on. Elk Range is about 65 to 70% public land. Okay. Yep. And then what do you think that's going to be like for a hunter in that thick, that thick stuff up there? And then also, I guess, too, being that it's a Wisconsin resident and going after elk, like, I, I'm not going to act like, I mean, we're sitting with people in this room that have hunted elk before. So I'm not going to act like people in Wisconsin have never have no concept of it, but what do you think it's going to be like for the hunters going up there, you know, hunting a herd that hasn't been hunted before, but being in this thick stuff, it'll be, it'll be a little interesting, I think. Yeah. I mean, some of these guys, at least three of the the guys that got a tag have elk hunted before. And as a matter wow. of fact, two of them are hmm. not going to go on the opening weekend because they have elk tags out West. Oh, <laughs> so they do have some experience. But, you know, there's big differences in, I mean, the, like I said, the country is extremely thick, but if they can find a good area that's being frequented by elk in the clear cuts and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. we're anticipating 100% success rate. That's why there's only five tags out there for them. We, yeah. you know, we're anticipating that 10 total bulls are going to uh, get, get taken out of the population. So, I, you know, if they put their time into it, I would expect they would all get one. But there's also various levels of of experience and ability and that kind of thing. And in talking to some of them, some of them have more time to spend at it than others. Some of them, you know, varying in age. There's uh, the youngest guy, I think, is probably in his 30s, and there's two guys in their 70s. Wow. So oh, wow. how much time they put into it, I think it's going to be like anything else. But it's not going to be an easy hunt. I mean, that, That's is, what I was that is thick cover. The rut is going to be over. But the advice that we've kind of given them is if they get up there now in September and they do their scouting and they find where the bulls are now, the bulls are going to be obviously with cow-calf groups. And those cow-calf groups don't move that much. They're fairly homebodies. By mid-October, those bulls aren't going to be that far away. So they're still likely to be in the general Mm -hmm. vicinity. Now, whether the big herd bull is still there, you know, who knows? They'll, Mm -hmm. They'll find that out, I guess. But there certainly will be smaller satellite bulls that are still hanging around, hoping one of those cows comes back into heat or, you know, Mm -hmm. something like that. Just the way you describe it, too, it almost sounds like hunting a flatter version of Roosevelt's in the Pacific Northwest. And you're talking clear cuts. It's thick. Thick cover, you know, not not be able to see that far. And like you said, but, you know, you do get in those openings. It's got got good feed. You know, the elks are, the the elks. The elks. The, elks. the elks club. Um, um, you well, know, are going to gravitate towards those openings with you're the brows. Right. And, and I think in some ways, I mean, some of our elk actually look like Roosevelt elk. Someone will get the three crown oh, on no it. Way. Now, we've done the genetic studies, and they're not Roosevelt-related. But uh, anyway, you're exactly right. The difference here is that there's no topography to get up high and glass mm-hmm. down. Right. And the clear cuts are a lot smaller. So, okay. you know, it's not like they're going to be able to get up high and look a half a mile across and see right. where they stock it. When they see one, you know, if they see an elk, chances are they're already going to be pretty close to being within shooting distance right. of it. Right. right. You know? Yeah. Are any of those cuts, are they, you know, you talked about kind of like, you know, being enrolled in the programs, you know, or, or private landowners enrolled in programs where they're, doing some logging there. Is any of that timber company land up there as well? Absolutely. Uh Yeah, there is industrial uh, forest. Now, most of that falls outside of where we want the hunters to hunt right now. Okay. So we have a large Clam Lake elk range, but we are asking them to not hunt in part of it because it's where we released Kentucky elk last year. Mm. So we're doing everything we can, and they are totally tuned into this and agreeing with it. And so are the tribes that we don't want any of this to look like a put and take yep. elk hunt. Gotcha. Okay. Oh yeah. You know, so th- these aren't stock birds. 
these are big game animals that deserve a different level of respect, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Right. And they're totally tuned into that. So most of the animals that we brought in from Kentucky in 2017, and we're going to do again in 2019, are going further south, about 35 or so miles south of Clam Lake, where most of the original Clam Lake elk are, mm-hmm. that the, the original Michigan offspring. Mm-hmm. And they're going down there uh, because of all the reasons I talked about. There's a ton of young forest down there, that industrial forest. I mean, those guys are cutting trees for a reason. And the county forests, mm-hmm. you know, they that's how they relieve their tax base within the county mm-hmm. is on a lot of that stuff. So um, where was I going with this? I just totally lost my I don't know, but train just, keep just keep going. Just keep going. We're going to, I get like seven more questions and I forget one. I, I find know, another yeah, one. Same. This yeah, is I'm awesome. sorry about that. But uh, the habitat, it's its thick, it's jungle, and it's, I mean, its if they can find those cow-calf groups now, they should be able to tap into it. But I think, personally, one of the coolest ways that they could go out and get one it would be to go in late November, well, it won't be open late November, but in that 10 days or so in December, yeah. you could go out, drive those logging roads on fresh snow, track cut them. the biggest track you could find, and, oh, man. Yeah, and you could walk incredible. one up. Dude, you I could just, definitely walk one up. Oh, man. Yeah. I just got excited thinking that about that. Mark, <laughs> and that's, Mark Goosebumps Boardman. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's why I say we you know, we anticipate it's going to be 100% success. They've yeah. got six weeks to hunt. Mm-hmm. You know, Early on, it's probably not going to be easy, but they're going to get some elk, and mm-hmm. and you can still get those elk. They may not come to a call in October, in that mid-October, late-October kind of thing, but a lot of times they will respond to it. So yeah. it's like six-period turkey hunting. You yeah. can maybe get one to gobble, and at least you know he's there. He may not come, but it's a starting point, yep. and, and I think they're going to be able to do the same thing. I mean, I've heard bulls bugle in late November, Yeah, you know, mid-November. Yeah. You know? Well, hey, we shot two turkeys over the weekend that both gobbled and came in like it was April. You're so you never me. know what's yeah, going to happen. For the record, it's September 26th. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I'm yeah. not, I'm not joking. So. I, I had a question. You know, you brought up, you know, the Kentucky elk, and I was curious reason for the transition from the Michigan elk to the Kentucky elk. So you're asking, why did we go to Kentucky? Mm-hmm. Disease is a huge part of that. Okay. Well, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's multiple things. Disease is a very big part of it. Willing donor is another part of it. Okay. Uh, you know, sheer numbers of what they're able to give. So we got our elk from Michigan, you know, that was a lot of years ago. Michigan does have CWD in it now. Michigan uh, has had tuberculosis in their deer population, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's been in their elk population, but it's in the same general vicinity of where their highest prevalence of tuberculosis is. So that immediately knocks them out of the picture. Sure. Kentucky reintroduced their elk a year after, two years after Wisconsin did. And they have over 10,000 elk in Kentucky. But but the difference, the difference is Kentucky brought in 1,500 elk as their founding, their base, call it your founding population. Okay. Okay? They brought in 1,500. We brought in 25. And actually, if you look at the numbers, they're not all that much different. Our rate of growth is extremely similar to their rate of growth, but they just brought in so many. Yeah, Within okay. two years, they started hunting elk in Kentucky. Wow. But Kentucky has 10,000 elk. They have helped out a few other states with elk reintroduction, and they have just been fantastic to work with, and they are a state that seems to truly believe in the pay it forward. You know, we got help. We want to help you in the same way that we got help from somebody else. And But... Uh, Huge part of going to Kentucky also, not only do they have the animals, but Kentucky is a, they are classified by, I believe, USDA as a low-risk CWD state. Okay. So to date, they have tested over 20, what was it, 25,000 plus animals, and they have never had a CWD detection in the wow. state. Wow. And that's a huge part of it. So we can, yeah. you know, we can easily test, before we even move animals out of the state, we can test for tuberculosis and brucellosis, which are both, you know, important to our cattle industry. They both affect cattle. So we don't want to, you know, being the dairy state here, we don't want to bring something like that in. But there is no 100% reliable test for chronic wasting disease. So we are going to the state with the lowest risk that we can find that will give us those animals. Yeah. As you guys are establishing elk herds in the state, you know, there's, it seems like, you know, there's elk in, in more than one area is, you know, CWD exists in Wisconsin. Yep. Are you putting those herds in places where it's less prevalent or not prevalent at all to our knowledge? Well, I would say yes. So at the moment, 
And when elk were first reintroduced in Clam Lake, we didn't have CWD in Wisconsin, or at least it wasn't detected okay, right. to oh, that yeah. point. Okay. And we went into both the Clam Lake area and Jackson County before we brought in more elk, and we tested the deer population in both of those counties to try to, people a lot smarter than me in numbers, can determine how many animals to test to give you, say, a 95% confidence interval that the disease, if it's there, is at less than 1%. Okay. okay. So that's like 150 animals in each area. And we tested for CWD. Neither area had a detection. Neither area still has a detection all these years later. So we certainly would not want to put animals into an environment that already has a fatal disease. If they get it, they're dead. So right. southwestern Wisconsin it. is kind of out of question probably. in the future. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not going to happen. So, Unless, you know, I would suggest uh, the North bringing in maybe about 10,000 elk, and maybe they just naturally <laughs> spread to the area over time. Well, that's the, but see, that's where all that I was talking about before, that whole tolerance thing. Now, yep. there's not yeah. a farmer yeah. in Iowa County that would say, great, let's put some elk out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, probably not. So that's fair. Yeah. One question I had because Kevin, I know you and I have talked about the size of some of these bulls that are out there. Elk reintroduction has been going on for, you know, over 20 years at this point. Could you, and for me growing up here, and I think almost everyone, probably except yourself, sitting at the table here today, haven't seen a Wisconsin elk. I could be wrong about that. Haven't seen one. So, you know, when I, I always had heard, I'd known we had elk in this state. And I figured, you know, we had some nice, maybe a couple five by five stuff like that. I never expected when I asked you this question, you know, a couple months ago, and you showed me some pictures to see what we actually have here. Could you yeah. just kind of speak to some of the bulls that are out there? Yeah. So, an unhunted elk population after twenty three years, you got to know, is going to have some very old and very big bulls in it. So, you know. One of the things, of course, though, that before I answer that question, one of the things that, of course, limits antler size in in Wisconsin is going to be our hard winters. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you can see the differences in some of those western states. You know, you can look at elk from Colorado, and they start out, and they have these nice big fronts and everything, and then by the time they get to the top, they start petering out, and they might have, you know, short G5s on them and that kind of thing. Compare that to, say, Arizona or New Mexico, where they have they come out of winter in better condition and everything mm-hmm. else, and they've got these giant daggers on top. Well, our elk are kind of in that same boat. But despite that, we've got we've certainly had bulls that would probably go, you know, in the 330 to 350 range. Mm-hmm. Really nice bulls. And there's one up there right now. We know for sure that he's killed at least two other bulls. Man, I was hoping you were going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's a, he's a big nasty dude. You know, he's probably got 20 to 24 inch tines on him and he's I mean, he's this big around. I, I know they can't see this on the radio. <laughs> but it's big. But it's <laughs> big. That is. Um, and somebody found actually a, a matching pair of his sheds, and I can't remember what they weighed, but each one was like 20 pounds. So these are big, big antlers on some of these things. Yeah. And maybe 20 is probably a little high, but they were big. Yeah. Anyways, we have, so I told you we have a trail camera system out there, and some of our staff actually spend a lot of hours as part of our population estimate methods of going through and trying to identify bulls based on antler configuration. And we can identify them from year to year. But I'm trying to remember what the numbers are. But we have, just in the Clam Lake area right now, I want to say we have like a dozen that are like six by six, quite a number that are various, you know, big five by fives versus smaller five by fives mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So there's wow. some really nice elk out there. And, yeah. and one of the elk that got killed uh, by that other one I told you about in a rut fight a couple of years ago, he was only a four by four. He was way on the downslide. He was uh, 19 years old. And we knew that because he was caught as a calf. So we knew this 19. animal. He was Jeez. 19. We actually have one cow out there that's an original Michigan elk. So she's a 24-year-old animal. You're 24 year old animal. Wow. Yeah. So that kind of squashes the whole wolves kill them all yep. uh, yeah. theory, doesn't it? Yep. She a lot of these animals are old. She deserves a medal. Yeah. yeah. She's a queen. Yeah. yeah. She's cranked out a lot of calves, too. But yeah. Uh, yeah, geez, she's probably, I mean, if you, like, imagining the family tree, if you will, of the elks out there, like, that's Eve. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. Yes. Uh, well, and the interesting thing about her is she's one of the animals that from very early on, 
her and another bull went, we call it the butternut group. So they went over towards the town of Butternut, and there's actually about 20 elk over there, and they're pretty much all her offspring. Really? And yet there's not a genetic concern about any of it. Right. Uh, you know, and we've actually pulled, we do another little thing. We've talked about the habitat. We've actually, we do something called assisted dispersal where we will go into an area and trap, you know, a dozen or so elk out of it and move them to a new part of the of the range because these elk don't go anywhere. They're not like out west where they, you know, walk eight miles a night just to get a drink of water. Everything they need is right there. So part of our problem in this whole thing is that these elk don't spread out very much. Mm-hmm. They live in a fairly small home range, okay. and they might live their whole life within a few miles of where they were born. Wow. So that butternut herd is actually one of the herds that we targeted at one point. We went in and we caught about a dozen of them. Those animals got hauled down to the Flambeau River State Forest and are now intermixing with those new Kentucky elk. So we have a mixing of genetics going on, and that was one of our goals is to bring in more elk. So back and way up, Wisconsin got our elk from Michigan. Michigan's herd started with seven animals, and now they wow. have eight or 900 animals in the state, and they've right. had a hunt for years and years, and they shoot some really big bulls. Is that mm-hmm. mostly up in the UP, or is that no, also in the mainland? No, it's central. It's like the Gaylord area, Pigeon River country, if you oh, know really? that whole. It's kind of north-central hmm. uh, lower peninsula. I know a guy that drew one of those tags, and he shot a dandy bull. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, they have beautiful elk over there, and, and you know ours are all the same genetics, but... You know, because that founding herd in Michigan started with only seven animals, we have actually uh, looked at the genetics of that population. We don't have any major concerns, but we also wanted to make sure we didn't have any problems down the road. So that's another reason we wanted to bring Kentucky elk in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kentucky's elk came from six western states, so they've got a real mix. And, of course, everybody's elk started from Yellowstone, you Mm -hmm. know, way back when in the late 1800s. There were elk pretty much nowhere else except in Yellowstone. So, Hmm. you know, in the early 1900s, all kinds of eastern states were pulling elk out, throwing them on trains and hauling them across the country and dumping them. And that happened here in Wisconsin. Those elk didn't survive, but they did in Michigan. They did in Pennsylvania. And, you know, Pennsylvania's got even more elk than Michigan. So it's been successful. So this could be a totally naive question. So if it's a stupid one, you can tell me. But we've gotten elk from, from Michigan and Kentucky, like we've said. Is part of the reason you get elk from states like that, I think you, you mentioned there's a willing participant, stuff like that, but also does it have to do, does anything have to do with the fact that like Kentucky and Michigan have similar habitats to like what they'd have in Wisconsin? Is there a reason why you don't maybe go out west for elk because it's drier, more mountainous or? Well, or just so that's a really good question and it's going to take kind of a long answer to get to but very long answers our have been good elk, thus far. our elk that have come out of Michigan seem to have taken less time to adapt to the northwoods environment than the kentucky elk are mm-hmm. but remember mm-hmm. kentucky started 2 years after we did and all of their elk came from out west okay so their animals are still kind of western oriented and kentucky's a totally different habitat than what we have here you're talking that eastern coal mine country it's beautiful country i'd love to turkey hunt down there sometime but those animals seem to have a little bit different resistance to various things for example what we're seeing right now in the elk that we put down in jackson county uh, as well as the the kentucky elk that we put up in the clam lake area they seem to be a little bit more susceptible to predation because they've never they've never experienced the predators that we have here. Right. Okay? okay. So it's a little bit different, but they're adapting to it. They seem to have a little bit of a higher, or I should say, a, a lower resistance to brainworm. Okay. So pretty much all of the deer in Wisconsin have brainworm. It's what kills our moose. It's why we don't have a big moose population in Wisconsin. Not CWD. Different from that. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's, this is actually a parasite. A par- okay. Yeah, it's an actual worm that gets into their brain and kills them. It's not a folded prion, you know, it's not a folded protein like yeah, CWD. Yeah. This is a parasite. Fairly interesting life cycle. It involves flies and larvae and a slug. Uh, it's it's weird. I'm not going to try to get into that right <laughs> All now. All right, that's fair. Um, and you don't want it. <laughs> Another time. Another <laughs> yeah, time. You don't want it. But my point behind all this is that these animals that came from the western states are experiencing things here that the elk that came out of Michigan and had multiple generations to get used to, they probably did in their early days, but anymore, they're more resistant to that kind of thing. So that's a really good question. 
Makes sense. Not a stupid question at all. Good, good. Yeah, I just want to make sure ahead of time. And, and, you know, and getting back to that point, Missouri has seen the same thing. So the couple years before we got elk from Kentucky, Missouri had an elk reintroduction in their state, and they saw fairly high losses from brainworm as well. Okay. They actually had a cougar in Missouri that was killing elk. Wow. So, Jeez. interesting. We That's have good. not had a confirmed cougar kill yet. <laughs> that brainworm, though, and I know we don't really want to stick around on too long, but it's not fatal for the whitetails, right? No. Mm-hmm. All of our deer pretty much carry it. It's extremely fatal to moose. It's supposedly even more fatal to caribou. And it is it can be fatal to, to elk. But I mean we've you know, we've had elk that we we have a, a nickname for them. We call them brainers. We we can catch elk once in a while during our trapping efforts when we we're in Kentucky and he could kinda of look at an animal and go, Yeah, probably. You know, just by the way it's holding its head or its ears are drooped or something, you know there's mm-hmm. something wrong with it. And we have lost elk here in Wisconsin, not just, you know, not just those Kentucky elk. We have lost some Michigan elk, original issue. We don't call them Michigan elk anymore. These are Clam Lake elk. Right, know? right. These mm-hmm. are, they were born here. So, but, you know, you can, you can see it. Some of those elk can survive it. Some of them are a little bit affected by it. Some of them it will kill. But it's not super high prevalence that it's, you know, we're not concerned about it wiping out the elk numbers. Our yeah. elk numbers are growing our elk numbers have grown all but tw- uh, two years. In 23 years, elk numbers have gone up. So That's cool. What is the, the calf recruitment rate out there on the landscape right now? Um, well, this year in the Clam Lake herd, we had, if I can remember my numbers, we estimated that we had about 54 to 56 breeding age cows. Okay. That should have brought about 44 to 46 calves into the population. That's strong. So most of them are going to get pregnant. Yeah. If we have a mild winter, most of them are going to drop a calf. Now, whether that calf survives or not is based on a lot of things. Certainly, we want that rut. You know, it's one of the reasons that we don't want to have that gun season during the peak of the rut, because if you disrupt the rut, we have found that the later our calves are born, because they might not have been bred during that first cycle, okay, right. the later the calf is born, the more likely it's not going to be alive going into the, its first winter. Gotcha. Interesting. Yep. So those early calves, big, fat, healthy calves, and we had some big, fat, healthy calves this spring. It was really pretty dang cool. We had Our calves averaged over 40 pounds this year. Wow. Awesome. Um, and as a result, our biologists up there had a tough time catching them. We go out in the spring just like we did with you guys looking for fawns, they had a tough time getting them because within two days they were running. They could not catch them. Yeah. And that's great. I mean, they're big, fat calves. And we'll get a population estimate later in the year when we do winter trapping and that kind of thing. So we'll be seeing Mm -hmm. them. Still baffles me that anything can be two days fresh into the world and sprinting. Oh, seriously. Outrunning humans. Yeah. Well, I about had a heart attack just looking for calves this spring. I I don't think I ran that hard since I was 18 years old. So I thought I was going to (laughs) die. And thank God, thank God the fawn hit the deck and I was able to get it. But I was just about ready to heal over. (laughs) Incredible. Incredible. This has been probably the most, one of the most interesting podcasts that I've ever been on. I don't want it to end. I know. Same. Yeah. But it just, it'll be, it'll be really cool. And you even said it. We're not calling the, you're not calling the Michigan elk anymore. It's the Clam Lake herd. This is these are Wisconsin elk. It'll be yeah. cool, you know. And I'm sure it's interesting for you guys, especially as as biologists, and seeing you got those elk that came from Kentucky, the ones that came from Michigan, and as they mix and they kind of have, they, they'll kind of start their own gene pool, so to speak. And you know, then we'll have yeah. I mean, it, it, it's neat to have Wisconsin elk. Yeah, I mean. Oh, it's awesome. It's incredible. Well, and that's a question, I guess, that I had. I know we'll probably have to, you know, close it up here at some point, but what have you seen, you know, since we've, since Wisconsin has started the elk hunt this year, what have you seen as far as like an awareness from the, you know, hunting population, the non-hunting population? What has that done for the elk program in the state? I'm, I'm assuming it would, it's been great for the yeah. elk program. Yeah, it's been, it's been very, very good. So one of, this might sound vindictive or something. One of the most gratifying things for me in this whole thing is that you've always got your naysayers out there. And you've always got people that will say this population's it's never going to grow. We're never going to hunt it. 
it's nothing but high price wolf food, all those kind of things. They're they're completely out of tune with what's going on. Like I said, I mean, we got twenty four year old original yep. Michigan elk still running around out there. But now that we actually have launched an elk hunt, it's shut a lot of that kind of stuff up because clearly the population is growing and it and it has been, like I said, every year but two, and those were bad winter years. But it's been very gratifying to see a lot of that stuff just kind of fade away. Good. It's also been very gratifying that more and more people are tuning into it and learning about it. And when one of those big mouth dudes jumps on and starts talking smack about the thing, I don't have to go on there and correct him. He gets mm-hmm. pummeled by 10 other guys. Right. You know? mm-hmm. They shut him right down, and those people are fading away. So, like I said, that might sound... I don't know what that sounds like, but I love it's it. great to see. <laughs> no, it's yeah, nice. you know, from yeah. a hunter standpoint, and it's hard to even imagine to me that some of those guys that are doing that call themselves hunters. They don't know anything about conservation. They don't. They wouldn't know a success story if it bit them in the rear end, you know. <laughs> and this is a conservation success story. I mean, how think back? I mean, think about this. How cool is it that our ancestors wiped an animal off the face of our state? And we were able to bring it back to the point where we can actually go out and eat backstraps out of it. Yep. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. And it's all because of great partnerships, uh, great conservation organizations from big, you know, big national to local small, people pumping money into it, local little businesses wanting to see it happen. It's been great for tourism. But that that awareness thing, uh, getting back to your question, has been Really great to see. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more people know about it now, and you know, you talk to people about it, and and they'll say, "I didn't even know we had elk in Wisconsin." That's mm-hmm. great, and mm-hmm. you know, you start talking about bugling in September and everything else, and you know, we put stuff on the department website, and there's more people going up there. Yep. From, I mean, we're sitting here on the edge of Madison, two hours from here, you can go up and listen to elk bugling right now. Mm-hmm. It's a day trip. Mm-hmm. So, That's awesome. Yeah. I see a road trip great. in our future. Oh, yeah. totally. It's, There's just it, something yeah. so cool about those animals. And they're, you know, they're more accessible probably than you think they are. I mean, you can you hear them bugling from, you know, if the conditions are right for them a couple miles away. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are on public land. And yeah. you can, you can so try flat. To, Try to find them. But, you know, at the same time, as much as we want people to be enjoying them, we also want them to keep in mind they're new on the landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to pressure them when they're, right. when they're rotten and everything else. Don't start and, going yeah. and try and take selfies with them. Yeah, probably not. Um, we <laughs> haven't had unless much. Unless you have of, a we, selfie stick, then you'll be, you know, well, you'll be safe pr- properly right. far away. <laughs> you know? yeah. 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 But you know what? That part of it, too, people have been very respectful of it. For the, you know, for the most part, people really support that we're doing this. A lot of the people, they understand the purpose of, you know, there was always a plan that eventually we'd get to hunt them. It's, it's part of the recreation. It's part of what we do in Wisconsin, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Another uh, important component of this, though, and I said before, we don't worry about the money. None of this is about the money. However, this stuff does take money to, yep. to mm-hmm. do, and all of us are demanding. You know, we all, we all want a nice parking lot to at, when we go to the public hunting ground, and yep. we all want this and we all want that. Well, there's only limited amount of money that can happen out there. And people want elk on the landscape in Wisconsin, and at some point that population needed to start generating money to support itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the really nice thing now is that we had you know 38,000 people applied for an elk tag this year. That is a much-needed chunk of money that's going to help us do more good things for elk. And you know, we're on the brink of, by next year, by next spring, we're estimating we're going to have somewhere between 90 and 100 breeding age cows in the Clam Lake herd alone. Now, think wow. of the growth that's going yeah. to come out yep. of that. We're going awesome. to see, we could easily see 80 to 100 animals over the next several yep. years added. I anticipate next spring we're going to be over 300 animals up that's there. That's incredible. The following so year, cool. 400. The following 500. Yeah. That's exciting. More opportunity yeah. on the horizon. So, well, well, and, like, and like you said, I mean, like the money's not your primary motivator. For, for establishing these elk herds, but you said more, like you said, more than 38,000 people yeah. put in mm-hmm. for that tag. It's $10 to put in. I know Eric and I both put in. Mm-hmm. I, I, I must have missed the phone call. I'm just assuming yeah. I missed the yeah. phone I call. Yeah, I tried you and you didn't answer. So I went to <laughs> on the list. No, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but I mean, that that is an amazing amount of yep. revenue generated of people that it's like when I put in, well, I yeah. wanted to draw an elk tag. Like that had been like a dream thing to do, but yeah. I knew. 
I pretty much knew I was making a, don- a donation. That's what everybody says. Yep. Yes. But I was yeah. so excited to make that contribution. So it's funny that you say that because, of course, I applied. And if I would have drawn that tag, you know, they probably would have told me I couldn't have it because I work for the DNR. I would have quit my job on the spot to have that tag. If that's what it took, <laughs> I was gone. <laughs> yeah. But I'll be honest with you. So we did this. We did a computer drawing, and there was like, 20 people in the room. I couldn't believe how many people were there. The entire secretary's office wanted to be there to witness this little piece of history happening. And I admit, when they hit the button and it started generating, my heart was about pounding out of my shirt. And there was part of me going, please be me, please be me, please be me. And then the other part of me was going, please don't be me, please don't be me, please don't be me. So it was exciting, and uh, I mean, everybody in the room was on the edge of their seat, yeah. and every one of those 38,000 people got assigned a number, and it went spit, 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 and it kicked out four names. And, that is and so cool. And then, of course, the, you know, the last one went to the Elk Foundation uh, to raffle off. But yeah, it was, it was exciting, and, and like I said, later that day, I called all those guys, and every one of them just had the same reaction of total disbelief yeah. and then total, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. It was exciting. That's awesome. so cool. I think that's a good I think that's a good note to dive into our quick last calls here and, and sign out, even though I'm sure we could keep talking about it forever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'll kick it off real quick because I want to say, Mark, you and I earlier this week were talking – you hail from Washington, uh, not to the D.C., but Washington State. Mm-hmm. And you were discussing how, you know, some folks that are in, you know, big-time states, like uh, as far as hunting goes, like, you know, out west, they might look at states in the Midwest and think, oh, you know, just the flyover states, right? Yep. Not much going on there. And and I can't speak to the other states in the Midwest, although I'd imagine they're, I'd venture to guess they're fr- probably fairly similar, but Wisconsin is a cool state. It's very, very diverse. I think it's way more diverse mm-hmm. than, than everybody outside of it probably gives it credit for. Mm-hmm. My wife and I just went to Door County this last weekend. That was amazing. You can go up north, thick woods. You can go over to the west side of the state, and you're getting bluffs, hills, you know. In the center of the state, I'll admit, I find it very boring, but it's diverse. It's it's a cool place to be, and just adding elk into the mix, you know, oh, along with all the other hunting opportunities and outdoors opportunities that are here, it's pretty sweet. So yep. that's my last call. A plug for Wisconsin. Yep. On Wisconsin. Yep. I guess mine would just be, you know, Kevin, you talked about management a lot, and, and it's, it's so cool to hear how all that kind of works full circle and comes into a success story like this. I mean, like... Whether you're in Wisconsin or whatever state it is, your state, your the state that you call home probably has something pretty incredible going on right out your back door, and it's just a really cool time to be a, a hunter. Whether you're in Wisconsin, Washington, whatever, so and and take pride in what's going on out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, don't criticize it. Jump on board, and you know, who knows, you might draw that elk tag for the, be one of the first guys someday, mm-hmm. or, or a sheep tag, or something like yep. that. And we're paying for that. I mean, you as a hunter are fitting the bill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Be proud of it. Yep, absolutely. Well, man, my last call is is more of a question. I mean, these elk, obviously, very near and dear. I mean, practically your life's work in some ways. It seems. What was like? What was it like that moment when it was just like, holy mackerel, this is on. We are having a Wisconsin elk hunt. It's kind of hard to describe because it, you know, it was. There were so many years that we thought we were there. Or mm-hmm. that we were close. And then this year, you knew you were going to be there, but then you start stepping back a little bit and you go, okay, this should be a really exciting time. Who's going to drop a turd in my punch bowl? What <laughs> what politics are going to come into play? Who's going to complain about it? You know, how is this going to pan out? Yep. And I'm really happy to say that it met with excitement and support from the very start. It was, you know, awesome. it kind of took a little bit of, you know, it's maybe like having a kid when you're going to be a new dad and your wife tells you you're going to have a kid and you go, oh, God, and you start thinking about what this is going to cost you in college and having that kid grow up and being in your house for 18 years, and then you start getting more excited about it. It was kind of one of those things, you know. You always knew you wanted to have a kid, but now she's actually going to have a kid and you go, oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And then you start getting excited about it. And it was, I guess that's kind of the best way I can describe it because you know it's a positive thing, but with the politics that we work in and, you know, some of that pushback you get, even from your own 
constituents out yep. there, your own hunters out there, not to mention the animal rights side of it or whatever it might be. It, you kind of, from my point of view, you kind of worry about it. And, and then there's other people that go, wow, that happened fast. You're like, yep. it didn't happen <laughs> fast at all. It took yep. forever. Yep. So, Like you said, like having that kid, though, like until it pops out. Deer in the headlights. It, it's not real. You yeah. know, then all of a sudden, yeah. Yeah. this is happening. Yep. Nope, it's it's great and it's been positive and we have not received a whole lot of pushback from anybody. It's been really That's good. Awesome. So That's I sweet. can't wait to see how it turns out. Awesome. I'd say I'd say that about that about says it from here. That says it from here, man. Thanks to the Wisconsin DNR. Thanks to Michigan. Thanks to Kentucky. Yes. Yes. A lot of people. And Yellowstone and Foundation. Yellow, yep. yep. Yeah. I if I could just close with one kind of thing about this is I always say that this is like a poster child for great partnership. This has been a great project. Nobody wanted to be the hero in it. Nobody wanted to take all the credit for it. There's so many people behind it, so many individuals that'll get no credit for any of it. You know, all those volunteers out there that raise money or whatever, they're excited about it, but nobody's ever going to point to them and say, you know, you did this and name them by name. They know who they are, but there's so many people behind this. It's just been a poster child for great partnership, and it's, you know, and you guys too. I mean, the hunting industry, the money that people are spending to buy your Vortex binoculars and your Vortex scopes, that whole Pittman-Robertson money goes right back into projects like this, and a lot of this has been funded by Pittman-Robertson money. Hmm. And the hunters, I'm, I'm not kidding. When I say you help to fund this, the hunters out there are paying for this. They're fitting the bill on wildlife conservation in North America. That's cool. Sweet. Well, how about that? I can't, I think, I can't yeah. say it better all than that. Left to I say, can't either. All that's left to say <laughs> is the classic bye. 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 Toodaloo. <laughs> bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show. Maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like. So that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released. So that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.